Amen. All right, we'll go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, Mercy Fellowship, good morning. Welcome. Uh, Can we give Garrett a round of applause for leading us in worship this morning? Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Uh, While I'm up here as well, I'm going to go ahead and give you guys some announcements. Uh, First off, for those of you that give to this church and you call this church home, thank you for giving to this church. Thank you for giving regularly of your tithes and offerings. The only reason uh, that we're able to have staff have a building, even make plans for the future is because of the faithful tithes and offerings of you, Mercy Fellowship. So I just want to say thank you for that. There's a few ways that you can give um, through our church. Uh, The church app probably be the best way, Um, but just want to say thank you for that. Uh, John Calvin, he said money is like manure, and uh, when it's spread out, it works well, but when it's in one big pile, it stinks. And so it's just a way of saying, church, thank you for spreading your wealth. We so appreciate it here at Mercy Fellowship to help the mission go on. Also for you to be aware of, not this next Sunday, the 2nd, but September 10th is going to be our fall launch. So we're going to be starting a new sermon series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And then after service, what's most important is that we're going to be having lunch. And then part of that lunch that we're going to be giving to you guys, we're just going to be going over, hey, where's the church going? Uh, as far as the property selling cross street, how's that going? And then also just sh- giving vision for the future. So if you're able to be there, church, I encourage you to be there for that. Also another one, uh, last one for you guys this morning, Mercy Youth. That's starting back up, 6th graders through 12th grade, September 19th. It's going to be a Tuesday. It's going to be from 6.30 to 8.30, and it's just going to be a a great time just getting all the kids and the students back together. Uh, We're going to have a movie playing, we're going to have games, and we're going to have food, and it's just going to be a fun time gathering here in the Annex, 6.30 to 8.30. So if you've got kids in that range, or for you kids that are here in that range, we look forward to seeing you then. All right, Psalm chapter 22 is where we're going to be. If you've got a Bible, I encourage you to open up there. We're continuing our sermon series in the book of Psalms, Psalms Soundtrack for the Soul. And last time I preached, I went ahead and I told you guys what was the idea and the heart behind the sermon series. And just allow me to reiterate that. When you watch a movie, there's a soundtrack that comes along with that movie. And that soundtrack is meant to give life and depth to the film. And it's funny because you can go on YouTube and you can see people that have created, uh, they've, they've taken movie clips and they've pulled the music from those movie clips. And so when you watch those movie clips, the, the acting is, oh, it's not as good as I thought. The, the scene, it's kind of jaded and clanky and it just doesn't run smoothly. But then when you insert the music, oh, it adds depth to the film. It adds expression to the film. It adds emotion to the film. So it is with the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms, it is the soundtrack for the people of God. And it is meant to give life and color and expression and depth and dare I even say language as well to your Christian experience that you wouldn't be able to pull out on your own. The the Psalms are incredibly important for us as the people of God. And so let me ask you this. When it comes to the soundtrack of the crucifixion, What's the song for that? The the, the time of the crucifixion, a time of of pain and suffering, a time of lament, a a time of of sorrow and anguish, of of even being betrayed by friends and ultimately leading to death. What's that song? Well, that song is Psalm 22. Throughout the crucifixion scene, the Psalm 22 is quoted five times throughout the Gospels. 
More specifically, though, our Lord Jesus, when he's hanging on the cross, he quotes this psalm, Psalm 22. It'll be on the screen, Matthew 27, verse 46. Jesus, when he's on the cross, it says this, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and it said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. He's speaking in his native tongue, Aramaic, and it's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the first line in Psalm 22. Almost all the commentators, when they're looking at this, they're saying, hey, Jesus isn't quoting this because he's caught off guard. He's not quoting the psalm and saying, God, I didn't know you were going to forsake me. I didn't know this was happening. That's not what's happening. The commentators believe that when, God is, when Jesus is on the cross and it says that he's saying it with a loud voice, he's saying it for the people that were there. He's saying, I want you to know what I'm doing for you. I want you to catch what I am doing for the people of God. And so I want you to think about this psalm, Psalm 22, that we're looking at today like this. It's as if Jesus hanging on the cross, it's as if we're opening up his heart and we're getting a picture from his vantage point of what pain and suffering is. And we get to see from his vantage point what he is wanting us to see in light of pain and suffering. This is what this psalm is. This psalm is an expression, if you will, of the whole Christian life. It's gonna be about pain and sorrow. It's gonna work its way towards death. And eventually at the end of the psalm, it's gonna be about victory and triumph and resurrection. And so if you come in today, Mercy Fellowship, and you have physical or emotional pain, this psalm's for you. If you come in today and you're facing hardships, you've been betrayed by people, you feel insignificant, you're worried about the future, this psalm is for you. This psalm is the sufferer's song. So if you've got a Bible, Matthew chapter 22 Verses 1 through 10, we'll go ahead and break it up into three sections. This first section, verses 1 through 10. King David, he says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, and they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and in you they trusted, and they were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. This is God's word. Question for you this morning, Mercy Fellowship. Don't raise your hands. Have you ever gotten a concussion, though? I I felt weird asking this question in preparation for the sermon because I was thinking, how would you know? Because you probably had a concussion. You've been knocked out before. Uh, I, I... I've never had a concussion, but I grew up going to the skate park in Snohomish. That was kind of my daycare, if you will. And I witnessed a lot of concussions. I witnessed a lot of people getting knocked out. And the skate park, at least at the time that I grew up going there, it was just kind of a magnet for all that was bad. That's how I would sum it up. 
If, if people wanted to have fights, they would go to the skate park. If people wanted to try drugs or alcohol, they would go to the skate park. And if people wanted to run from cops, they would run to the skate park. It was just this magnet, if you will, for bad things to happen. As well as that, though, you have people that are at the skate park and they're trying to perfect their craft and work at it as far as biking and skateboarding goes. And what you find out very quickly is that the concrete is not forgiving. It usually wins. I witnessed a guy on a bike break his jaw at the skate park one time. That was pretty bad. It wasn't a good day for him. Uh, there was another time that there was a biker and a skateboarder and they were going down the ramp at the same time and they collided with each other. Skateboarder fell off, biker won, and so he ended up having a concussion. He was knocked out. We called 911. Uh, they showed up, and he's kind of in and out of it, and he's starting to get awake, so they put him to a stretcher. They lock him up to that, and once he starts waking up, he starts swinging at the people that are trying to help him. Now, one, I thought it was kind of funny from a distance, but from his vantage point, too, I can see why. Right? At one moment, he's just riding his skateboard. Next moment, he's on a stretcher strapped down. He doesn't know what's going on, right? Why do I bring this up? The reason I bring it up is this, church. Pain and sorrow have the same effect on us. They can leave us concussed. They can leave us disoriented to where we don't really know what's going on with our surroundings, right? Pain and sorrow, they have a way of leaving us concussed and disoriented to where we don't really know who, who God is. Oh, I thought I knew who God was, and I had some concrete realities about who God was, but, but now I'm questioning those. Oh, I, th I thought I knew who I was, but now I'm kind of even questioning who I am in light of the pain that I'm dealing with. And what David does in this section is that he highlights two things for us on how we are to deal with pain and suffering in our, our lives. One is this, he cries out to God in prayer. And the second is this, that he reminds himself of who God is. So number one, he cries out to God in prayer. Uh, too often, I think it's the case with people who deconstruct and people who deconstruct from the Christian faith is that they have wounds that might have happened and, and they're not lying about it. They're truthful wounds that they've gotten from the church or from other Christians but what happens is this, though. If you never get to prayer with God, but you're just focused in on your wound, focused in on your wound, hyper-fixated on your wound, the result is this, that you'll end up becoming jaded, cynical, pessimistic, just hyper-fixating on your wound. It's as if you end up having a wound and it starts to scab, and you just keep on peeling that scab off every time, never allowing the wound to fully heal the balm that is needed for the person that's in pain or in suffering, things are not going well. The balm that is needed is for a person to reach out to God in prayer. This is what David does. David says, hey, although I don't know what's going on, although I'm disoriented about it, day and night I am crying out to God in prayer. And let's be honest about his prayers as well. He's using honest language in his prayer right? He, he's not starting off this prayer like you and I do, which is, God, I thank you for this day you've given to me. I thank you for the food. I thank you for the grass. I thank you for the sunshine. No, he gets right into it. God, where are you? God, how come you're not answering me? God, how come it seems like you have abandoned me? He's using truthful language. Mercy Fellowship, as Christians, we believe the truth is life-giving. Amen? 
We believe the truth is life-giving. And this works its way all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where Satan, as the serpent, he deceives Adam and Eve. And the result from them believing a lie is that death and decay came about. Right? The truth is life-giving. It is lies that bring about death and decay. Right? Being, and so here's what happens. When we pray... Let me ask you, do you use truthful language about how you're feeling to God? Or do you just kind of beat around the bush and you're not really honest about your feelings in prayer to God? The, the truth is life-giving. Lies, church, they don't bring about healing. They don't bring about wholeness. If you go ahead and you lie to yourself, it's like doing surgery with dull, rusty tools thinking that's going to heal you. It won't. The clean, precise tools that you need to heal and pinpoint where the wounds are is using truthful language. Uh, Ruth and I, back in April, we were in Oregon doing some pastoral training stuff there, and there was a seasoned pastor there, a seasoned veteran. He talked about counseling, and he said when he's counseling people, it is just the most important thing that you use truthful language to pinpoint the problem. And he gave us an example that he had with an older man. He was a wealthy, successful businessman. And this businessman was talking to this pastor, and he was telling him what he does and, and how his business runs. And this businessman ended up saying that he hires younger, prettier women, and he gives them money. And then he'll even give them a little incentives with their money as well, just so that it might give them some, some nice things, if you will, if you catch my drift. So this pastor, he responds and he says, oh, you're a predator. That's who you are. This guy starts backpedaling. No, 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 that's not who I am. That's not what I'm doing. And this is, you're looking at this the wrong way. And he says, no, that's exactly who you are. That's what you are doing. If he would have lied to that pastor, do you think that would have brought about life? You think that would have brought about healing? Truthful language in counseling, in prayer, in life is meant to be life-giving. So let me ask you this, church. When you're hurt by others and you're dealing with suffering and pain, is God a part of the equation at all for you? God is truth. God is life. Is he part of the equation for your healing at all? You know, when you're sick, you go ahead and you see a physician, or, or when you need help mentally, you go ahead and see a counselor, all of which is good and right. But our Lord Jesus has been given the title, the great physician and the mighty counselor. Is he a part of your equation at all when it comes to your healing? David, he is disoriented by his pain, but yet he goes to God in prayer, being honest about how he feels. And the result for us, Mercy Fellowship, is this. So can you. So can you. You can be honest with God in your prayers. He can handle it. So one, be honest in God in prayer. Secondly, though, we need to remind ourselves about who God is. What does David say about God? He says this. He says, yet you are holy in verse 3. David, he is referring to a holy king, and it's this beautiful picture, actually. This king, he is sitting on a throne, and this throne is built by the praises of the people of God. And so David does this. David, he goes ahead, and he opens up his Bible, 
And he says, yeah, I'm looking through this, and I see that, God, you're, you're a holy king. And God, I even read as well how, how you've been faithful in the past and how you've been present to people. You can feel the tension. It's almost palpable in this psalm that David's experiencing because it's the same thing that you and I experience. We read in God's word, God, I see that you've been faithful, but how come in my situation, it seems like you're faithless? God, I read in your word how you've been present, how you answer prayer, but when I cry out to you in prayer, it seems like you're not answering me. He's got this tension that he's dealing with right now in these, this section. David, he goes on and says, like, hey, God, I'm reading your word, and I'm putting my trust in you, and my friends over here see that I'm putting my trust in you, and they're laughing at me. They're mocking me. I am a fool for putting my trust in you. David, he is abandoned by God, seemingly. Not only is he abandoned by God, though, but he's despised by the people that are around him as well for putting his trust in God. And the result for David is this. He says, I am a worm and not a man. It's a weird reason that he would say that. You look at all the different translations, they use that same word, worm, and it's just meant to communicate this. I am nothing. I am insignificant. I don't matter, obviously, if God's not answering me and humans are rejecting me. He's disoriented about God himself. Uh, perhaps you come in today and you feel that way. Perhaps you come in today and you say, hey, you know, I, I don't feel like God's present. I don't feel like God's answering me. I don't feel like God cares about me. I don't feel like I matter to God. We gotta be really careful, church, when we talk about our feelings. And so let me define this for us. Your feelings, although real, do not always express what is really going on or what is true, all right? Let me say that one more time. Your feelings, although real, I'm not denying your feelings that you have, but they do not always express clearly what is really going on in a situation. That's why we started off talking about David being disoriented and us oftentimes being disoriented and concussed by pain and suffering. Our feelings, they can lead us astray. Here's why I say that, church. How does David feel? He feels like, God, you're far from me. That's how he feels. What's true, though? Verses 9 and 10. Yet... You are he who took me from my mother's womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. What's true? From your mother's womb, God has been aware of you. God has seen you. God has known who you are. You matter to God. And church, this is so significant that you know this. That you know, in fact, that you do matter to God. And it's meant to strengthen you. It's meant to embolden you. It's meant to put some steel in your spine to know this, that God is for me and not against me. Here's why. Um, I used to have a Facebook. I got rid of it. Now I'm a free man that I don't have a Facebook. I got rid of my Facebook about a year ago. And Ruth and I, we bought our home two years ago. And I put a picture on Facebook just saying, hey, we bought this house, looking forward to remodeling it. Got all these comments that said congratulations, that kind of thing. But my former boss, who helped me remodel homes and trained me on how to remodel homes, he said, great job. 
And it's like, are you kidding me? If he thinks I did a good job, I don't really care what anyone else says. I don't even really care what my family says. If I did a good job in his eyes, man, the world's made. I'm doing something right in life. You know this to be true, Mercy Fellowship. Remember grade school, girls? Oh, if this boy would like me, if he would pay attention to me, if he would just talk to me, right? Guys, if that girl, if she would just pay attention to me, if she would talk to me, if she liked me, it wouldn't matter if the whole world didn't like me, right? Here's why I say this, church. Here's why this is important. The God of the universe, creator of the cosmos, sitting as ruler and king over all of creation, knows who you are. He knows who you are. He's been aware of you from your mother's womb. He knows every moment that's going on in your life. He knew your name before anyone else knew your name. He knows your future before you even know what's going to happen in the future. God is specifically aware of who you are. He is intimately aware of who you are. One of the Psalms that's farther from this one, Psalm 56, says in verse 8, the Psalm just says, in God I trust. That's the name of the Psalm. It's a beautiful Psalm. Psalm 56, verse 8, it says this, You have kept count of my tossings. God knows how many times you flip-flop in the bed. That's detailed. He's aware. You've put my tears in your bottle. God knows when you cry. He's aware of what's going on in your life. Are they not in your book? And it goes on to say in verse 9, I know this, that God is for me. Do you know that, Mercy Fellowship? Here's the problem, I'll tell you as a preacher, and even I can confess as a Christian. We can read the Bible, and we have like a mental assent to like, yeah, I believe this, yeah, this is true. But there's just some things that need to work their way down to the heart to where it's like, oh yeah, this is a concrete reality for me. I believe this. And how it changes my life, and it changes my attitudes. Perhaps, Mercy Fellowship, This is why Paul writes to the church in Rome, who, by the way, is a suffering church. And he says this in Romans 8, 31, if if God is for us, who could possibly be against us? Let God be true and every other man a liar. If you are in Christ, if your faith is in Jesus, if this is true for you, you are significant to God. And there's no man that you need to fear. You don't need to fear the opinions of others. If God is for you, who could possibly be against you? So David, he shows us this, that in our pain and suffering, we need to reach out to God in prayer. And through reaching out to God in prayer, be honest. Be truthful about who you are and what's going on. Not only that, though, church, we need to remind ourselves of who God is. But this life is not really linear. Can we be honest on that? It's not really a, if you plug in in this equation, therefore, it's going to work well for you. We'll see this in the psalm in a second, but David's doing this. He's reading about who God is. He's reading about how God's for him and not against him. And we're going to read, oh, his life doesn't get better because he knows that. It actually gets worse. Like, this is the human experience. It's not always moving from joy to joy to greater joy to greater joy. Sometimes it goes from worse to even worse. What do we do with that? 
Psalm 22, verses 11 through 21, continuing on. He says this, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Bashan was a town that was known for pride. So prideful bulls are surrounding David. They open their mouths wide at me. Like a ravening, roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. It's a broken, uh, broken pottery. And my tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs, they encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones, and they stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, and you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. David is painting a vivid picture for us, right? He's using imagery. He's talking about how he's got enemies in there and circling around him, and they're all defined as beasts. You see this? Bulls, ravenous lions, dogs, evildoers. Like, I can, we can go ahead and assume David's not having a good day, right? He, he's not just walking to the store with his pals. David is encircled by his enemies, and they're getting closer and closer and closer, suffocatingly close. Like, there's a collective animosity against David, right? David, he fought in a lot of wars. That might be why. But when you look at the commentaries and we ask the question, what's going on in this psalm? Like, this is rough. Uh, they go ahead and we, the commentators, they'll go ahead and say this. We don't know what's going on in, the, in this part of David's life. But what we do know is certain is this. It's not an illness he's facing. Rather, he's being led to his execution. Like, David's being led to death in this psalm we see here. So what is this? This is a vivid picture of death. Like death, each day, it is getting closer and closer and closer, suffocatingly close. There's no escape for this. Mercy Fellowship, just so you know, I love this church. I love you. And it would be a disservice of me if we just left things like the topic of death in the shadows and we never talked about it. We need to talk about these things, however hard they might be. Death is something that we will all face. There's, there's no escape for death. We will all pass through that door, if you will. Oh, the writer of Hebrews, he goes on to say, it's appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. So this is something that we will all face. One day, this church will be filled with different people other than us, because we will all passed away. We have all gone through the door of death. How do you feel about that day? How do you feel about that day? It's amazing to me the, the amount of money and effort that gets put into by the human race to avoid death and death's effects on us. I was just reading an article last week from the New York Post 
about a Russian multimillionaire who's investing in, and I didn't even know it was a thing, but he's investing in immortality science. And his hope is that he lives to be 200 years old. That's what he's investing all of his money into. It's actually the Eastern Orthodox Church position. I don't know if it's our church's position, but I agree with their position on this. That death is actually a mercy from God because that means that you don't have to live forever in a world where there's pain and suffering and all of your loved ones go ahead and die, but you continue to live. It's a gift from God. I read that, that he's investing in immortality science. Along with that, there's a futurist, someone who just is looking towards the future, making predictions about the future. His name's Ray Kurzweil. And he says, by 2030, immortality will be achievable. That's wild. Immortality is possibly achievable. Last one, Mercy Fellowship. I read a book back in 2020. uh, It's called Pursuing Health in an Anxious Age. For someone like myself who's anxious, particularly around the topic of health, it was a great book. I recommend it. Bob Cotillo is who wrote it. But he quotes a bioethicist named Leon Cass, and he says this. The quote will be on the screen. For truth to tell, victory over mortality is the unstated but implicit goal of modern medical science. Indeed, of the entire modern scientific project to which mankind was summoned almost 400 years ago by Francis Bacon and Rene Descartes. They're two philosophers in the past. That's all you need to know right now. They quite consciously trumpeted the conquest of nature for the relief of man's estate, and they founded a science whose explicit purpose was to reverse the curse laid on Adam and Eve, and especially to restore the tree of life by means of the tree of scientific knowledge. With medicine's increasing success realized mainly in the last half century, every death is increasingly regarded as premature, a failure of today's medicine that future research will prevent. You see what they're all saying? We're anxious about death. We're worried about death. We're investing money and time and effort into death. Why? Because we're like David. Our, Our hearts melt like wax within us at the thought of death. You know this to be true, Mercy Fellowship. I'm not saying anything you don't know. If you've lost a loved one, death has robbed you. Death has robbed you of of precious time and memories and conversations that you won't get back. Death's a thief. In fact, our Lord Jesus, when he goes to visit his friend Lazarus, who had just passed in John chapter 11, and he goes to see him, it says this in the Greek, that Jesus was angry. He was angry. Death has stolen something from our experience. Death is a thief. So what hope is there for us? Are we left to just be in despair? We're not too far from David. We face pain. We face suffering. Death is coming our way. What hope is there for us in our experience of all of this as we face pain and sorrow? I don't know if you saw it, but the last verse that we read, the whole story just flips on a dime. The whole thing changes within like half a verse. Verse 21, David goes and says this, you have rescued me from the horns of of the wild oxen. Other translations say, you have answered me. So what's happened? God answered David. Like salvation happened, that he escaped death. 
is what happened here for David. He was delivered. And so what's David's reply to this, Mercy Fellowship? What's our reply when we have the same experience of escaping death because our Lord Jesus has helped escape it for us? Continuing on, verses 22 through 31, he says this, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I gotta tell somebody about this. That's a wild story. I'm gonna tell the brothers in the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted they shall eat and be satisfied, and those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over all the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow, down all, shall bow all and who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told to the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done this. David's reply. In fact, it's not even a reply, it's a command. Because God has done this great deliverance, therefore, worship him, praise him, exalt him as king over all of your life and over all of the nations because of what he's done. It's really interesting, actually. You, you read the context of this, and it goes even all the way back to the book of Leviticus, and it was a law, actually, that if God answered a prayer, you were supposed to throw a party. That's a great law. I think we should bring that back. And it goes like this. Okay, well, I prayed. God answered that prayer. I'm going to throw a party. I'm going to invite my friends, my family. We're going to have food. We're going to have drinks. It's going to be a celebration, and in the midst of that congregation, I'm going to say, this is the problem I had. This is how God answered that prayer, and this is who God is, right? An amazing story and situation of how God has answered prayer. What you are declaring amidst that group is this. God hears and answers prayer. Let me ask you this, Mercy Fellowship. Have you had any of your prayers answered lately? Uh, did you tell anyone when that happened? Like, it's one of the things for us as followers of Jesus that we go ahead and we let others know about what God has done in, in our lives. And let me say this. I say this as a pastor. Like, it's good to, to read big theological books. I doubt many of you like to, but I like to. They're fun. Big theological books, doctrines, good you know that. It's good that you can make a defense for the Christian faith, yes and Amen. But sometimes the best witness that you can have for uh, your life and for Christ is just to say, hey, here's how God answered my prayer. Here's how God helped me in a situation that seemed hopeless and, and, and how he delivered me. I think one of the things that stirs my soul more and more as days go on is hearing from you, Mercy Fellowship, 
how God's answered prayers. I think about times that we've prayed before church for, for people's parents that have had heart attacks, and then we find out a couple months later, they're doing great. They're at like 100% almost, and they're back to work. Like, things are going well. I love hearing stories from you guys about how, hey, I was struggling with this. I cried out to God, and he answered me. I don't know how many of you guys know who George Mueller is. George Mueller was an old British pastor in the 1800s, and he's kind of known for this. He recorded on his uh, notepads and stuff that he had every time he would make a request to God. And he found out at the end of his life he had 50,000 answered prayers from God. That's a lot. Right? I mean, you can go ahead and get your journal out and start writing those down. God, this is the request I have. See what happens. Maybe he'll answer it. Maybe he'll answer it in a way that you didn't expect. George Mueller, he went on, this is so nuts, I gotta tell you. He went ahead and he founded a bunch of orphanages in the 1800s, and you read his biography, and it's like every week they didn't have enough for the budget, and so every week he would pray, and every week they would make enough money for the budget. And I read that, and I think, one, that's amazing, God answers prayer. Two, the thought of being on that man's payroll is just so anxiety-proning to, to come about. This is outrageous. Like, George, do we have enough money this week so I can stay employed? Well, let me pray to God. We'll see if you have enough. We'll see if you're still on the team. He believed in the power of prayer. God answers prayers. God hears prayers. And so let me say this, church. This is good news for us but it has to go beyond the four walls of our church. It has to go beyond the four walls of our church. I say this, Pastor Chris and I, we've had conversations about this, and I own up to this as well as being one of the pastors. We have not done a good job, Mercy Fellowship, of being outward focused. In large part, that was due to COVID, because when COVID, you went in survival mode, you had to look inward. But we're trying to make efforts now for the future where we're going to look outward. How can we tell people about Jesus? How can we get this good news beyond the congregation, beyond the people, but as even this psalm says, it goes to the nations. This is what we're wanting to do. And so I understand this. As we talk about even something like sharing what God's doing in your life, for some of you, that can be scary. For some of you, that can be intimidating. What do we do with that? You can have confidence as you go out, you can have confidence and assurance as you go out because it says this, God is king over all the nations. <laughs> it all belongs to him. It, it all belongs to him. So therefore, when you go out, you can have confidence that people are going to respond even positively to what you're saying and that there's people that are wanting to hear from you about how God's working in your life and in this city. So we'll conclude with this. This psalm, it ends in parallel the same way the crucifixion ends. On the crucifixion, Jesus ends it and declares it is finished. And in this psalm, at the very end, it says, he has done it. The Lord, he has accomplished salvation. He has brought you and I safely from death to life. Redemptive history belongs to him. There's three things I want us to get when we conclude in this. Number one is this. This psalm, it's not about David. David wrote this psalm, but it's not about him. This psalm's about Jesus. 
Jesus, he is the true and better David. He is the true son of David. David cries out to God and he's delivered from death. But if you remember Jesus, he goes in the garden of Gethsemane and he cries out to God that he would be delivered from death and he's not. So that you and me might be delivered from death. David, he cries out to God in fear um, that he's been forsaken. But it's Jesus who actually on the cross is forsaken on our behalf so that we would never have to quote those words. Isn't that a weird thought? Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a verse you don't need to memorize. That's a verse that you don't need to know because Jesus was forsaken on your behalf so that you may never have to utter those words. David, he was a popular king, but Jesus is the king of the nations, inviting everyone who is suffering and in pain to come to him and find rest for their souls. This psalm, it ultimately points to Jesus. That's number one. Number two, church, have confidence in your prayer. Have a prayer life. If you don't have one, start one. If you've got questions on how to pray, let's talk about it. But have confidence in your prayer that when you go, two things. One, God hears you, and God answers prayer. That is an amazing gift that you and I have that most people in this world do not. Let's not take it for granted. We can reach out to God in prayer. Number three, and the final one, your pain one day will be redeemed. Your pain one day is going to be redeemed. Uh, Right now, we might not understand it. Right now, you might feel concussed with what you're going through. But God, he will take that which is evil and he will turn it and make it for good. I want you to read this quote. It's from a guy named James Stewart. He's a Scottish preacher in the 1800s. This is what he says about pain. They nailed him to the tree, not knowing that by that very act, they were bringing the world to his feet. They gave him a cross, not guessing that he would make it a throne. They flung him outside the gates to die, not knowing that in that very moment they were lifting up all the gates of the universe to let the king of glory come in. They thought to root out his doctrines, not understanding that they were implanting imperishably in the hearts of men the very name they intended to destroy. They thought they had defeated God with his back to the wall, pinned and helpless and defeated. They did not know that it was God himself who had tracked them down. He did not conquer in spite of the dark mystery of evil. He conquered through it. Mercy Fellowship, this is what's true for you and for me. You and me, we can look at the crucifixion and we can see, oh yeah, look at how God took something that was meant for evil and he turned it for good. And right now, you and me might not see that in our own stories, right? We might not see that. We might not understand that right now. But by the eyes of faith, we can go ahead and believe that God is going to take our pain and our sorrow, and one day we will behold and witness how God has taken something that was horrible in our lives, and he has turned it into a beautiful, redemptive story as he makes all things new. Let's pray this morning.